My name is Vida, Sister Prince. Today is Thursday, April 14, 1994. I am interviewing Gail Ferris on her life for the Oral History Project, Race and Memory in St. Louis. This is my independent study supported by the Missouri Historical Society. Uh, Gail, why don't you tell me about your early life? You were born in St. Louis and the date of your birth. Where were you born? Yeah, I was born January 22, 1937 at St. Anthony's mm -hmm. Hospital in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And we moved um, within three months to Webster Groves, and I grew up in Webster then. Okay. Um, what did your papa do? Papa was a salesman. He was in the leather business. And so he was in town half of the time. Uh -huh. And did your mother work? No. She was a wife at home. Who else lived in, in your home? Just the three of us. You were, you were an only child? Mm -hmm. Did you have grandparents in St. Louis? No. They were out-state Missouri and out-state Illinois. Gail, <clears throat> are you aware of the origins of your heritage, where mm -hmm. you came from, and when people came to this country? Partially, partially. Would you tell me what you know? On the Vandergrift side, which was my ma uh, maiden name, uh, the Vandergrifts originally came from Holland. Mm -hmm. The first Vandergrifts came over in, in the 1600s and owned part of Manhattan. To here? Mm -hmm. oh. to I mean, to the United, United States. States. Right. Mm -hmm. And owned part of Manhattan and uh, had warehouses and they were in the shipping business and uh, real estate business eventually. And Peter Stuyvesant, okay, and my great-great-great-whatever grandfather uh, had a bit of a tiff. And so suddenly my great-great-great-great-whatever went back to Holland <laughs> and sent <laughs> son, <laughs> yes, sent son back. Um, he did You know, don't know what the tiff was about? I have no idea. Okay. He uh, apparently sold quite a bit of his land holdings here, though, and and just removed himself. Mm -hmm. All right, and Son then continued on for a while, and then eventually removed himself. So that was the earliest time. Went back to Holland. Went back also. to Holland. Mm -hmm. Then eventually, about two generations later, the real immigration came for that family, and. Um, mother, father, and I. I understand it, 12 children. All right, so give me some kind of decade. I'm talking early 18, okay. very early 18. Mm -hmm. May even be late 17, but it, mm -hmm. okay. And uh, parents died either on their way or shortly thereafter, I think on their way. The children, all twelve, were separated at that time. The names, they knew how to say their name, but they didn't know how to write it. And so anytime you see a Vandergrift, it could be spelled so many different ways, they probably all come back to that. Uh, are, were they um, separated yes. by an agency or something like that? I don't know as there was an agency yeah. then. I think it was just separated by necessity. You know, the, yeah. This church or family. Church, family, anybody who would take these children would, would mm -hmm. take them. You know, but nobody apparently adopted them because they all kept their name. Mm. And then my uh, lineage came from that, and uh, 
the family um, started out in Pennsylvania. You have a Vandergrift, Pennsylvania. Some went the to mm -hmm. some went to to uh, Virginia and the Carolinas, and then over into Missouri. I'm who told who? I don't want to interrupt. Go ahead. All right. How did I find this out? My uncle began to do some research about five years ago, mm -hmm. and his wife. And so that's how I, that's okay. the source. I, I interrupted you. That's okay. The maternal side uh, of, on my father's side of the family, I can't trace that far back. But there uh, was a lady uh, whose name, last name was Rose, and they lived in Ohio, so I suppose Pete Rose, a baseball player, some <laughs> sort of relative. But at any rate, um, she was told she had, I don't know, the croup or something, but at any rate she had a malady. And the doctor in Ohio said, get to the Missouri spring waters, you will be healed. And so they were headed actually for the Springfield area in the Ozarks. And they didn't make it. Now why didn't they make it that far? I, I'm hazy as to why they didn't make it that far. Um, I absolutely can't remember at this point. But they stopped in St. They Louis. stopped, uh, they got as far as, they crossed at Cape. You know, they, they came down the Ohio and crossed over at Cape and they were heading north around some of the mountains that they knew were in existence south of them. And they were heading then and it bent north a little bit and headed west. And they stopped around Farmington area. I think an illness, I think it was his, he was ill at this point. They lost most of what they had with them, uh, partially during uh, the crossing they lost some things, and then with his illness, or the illness, whatever it was, consumed whatever uh, monies they had, and so they were really pretty much penniless and not well, and with children, and had to uh, stay where they were. And so they bought a farm outside of Farmington. I know that, I think this is like my great-great-grandmother, um, went to town and sold eggs, and that's how she made money to support the family. I remember her name because uh, it was Missouri Rose. It just mm -hmm. sort of clings, nice. clings to you, you know. And uh, then she became the strong one, and he died, and then she remarried, I think. But, uh, That's interesting, interesting on that side. My maternal side, the uh, Burkhardt family came from Switzerland, the, the Germans' side of Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And um, one side of the family was Burkhardt, and the other side on the paternal side was Simmons, S-I-E-M-E-N-S. And they came to Illinois. I don't know what attracted them to Illinois. Uh, they opened a hotel in the little town of Sorrento, which is an awful town. I mean, it's just a, a hill, a gnat, 
you know, it's just a terrible town. And they opened a hotel that the trains were very functional at that time, and the coal mines in that area were very functional, and so my great-great-great-grandfather ran this hotel and uh, helped establish that town and is written up in Illinois who who history kind of thing. Royalty on both sides. Yeah, I'm about that. <laughs> and then, um, my mother's mother, well, yes, my mother's mother died in childbirth, and so I'm just now finding out about that side of the family. They were the Longs, L-O-N-G. Her parents, I'm not sure about, but her sisters and she uh, taught school. And uh, she died of uremic poisoning. She wouldn't. She wouldn't die today, I'm right? Sorry. That's okay. Okay. She wouldn't. She wouldn't have died had the problem occurred today. Mm -hmm. She would have lived. But um, when she did die, that left my grandfather with a, a wee baby, and so she, um, mother, was left with her or given or lent to my grandmother whom she adored, that, that, that was a good relationship, until my grandfather remarried, and when he did, this was a typical stepmother story, that I really didn't find to out. To your other grandmother, you mean? My regular, my grandfather remarried, mm -hmm. okay, and then when he remarried, mother went back to live with mm -hmm. him. But when you said you went to, the, went to the grandmother, mother, was it, was it? My grandfather left her with his mother, Oh, with his mother. Until she... That would be his great-grandmother. That would be Your my great-grandmother, great okay. whom I didn't know. Okay. okay. And then he remarried. And, and then he remarried and then took, took her back. back. Uh-huh. Now, Mother adored her grandmother so that she mm -hmm. loved being there. And I think it was mutual, apparently. And uh, the step-grandmother, I mean, the stepmother was the typical stepmother story. Mm -hmm. And uh, they lived on a farm in Illinois. And when my step-grandmother would punish mother, she would lock her in the corn crib and leave her for a full day. And of course, that's where rats and mice are. And so she was terrified of rats and mice, of course, and she would, had an inferiority complex. And I didn't know all of the horrible stories, you know, until much, much later, in fact, fairly recently. So I just knew that there was no great love loss, and, and yet mother looked after her and uh, in her in my grandmother's later step grandmother's later years and took care of her and uh, although she never lived with us she was uh, in a nursing home mother was the one who took care of everything you know so at any rate um, that's the background of me what what go ahead okay dad grew up on a farm in uh, farmington all right and then wanted to come to the big city and he was always interested in leather, so he got into the leather business and the shoe business. And then mother, of course, was in this not-too-good relationship at home and in a farm in Illinois, and she came to the big city. And so she worked uh, for Western Union, but at Anheuser-Busch. She worked right outside of Gussie's office. And then dad uh, worked at Liber Standard selling leather. And they met at a, well, they didn't either. They met on a blind date. 
I didn't know blind dates were successful, but that one was. Mine haven't been. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe harder today. Maybe. <laughs> um, what kind of feelings about the background? I mean, do you have? I mean, about my background? Yes, uh -huh. From which they came. I, uh, has it impacted? How has it impacted? Mm -hmm. It hardly has impacted uh, because we really didn't know all of the background until really mm -hmm. relatively recently. And uh, so. What did you think of yourself as? How did you, if I would say, tell me how you identified As a yourself. child? Mm -hmm. All right, as a child, I thought of myself. Um, as an eager beaver, I can remember uh, up to kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Uh, I was just the natural, curious, wonderment type child where everything was mm -hmm. a, a wonder um, and a joy. There was there was that kind of kind of glowing thing in me at that point, and that's amazing because mother was quite ill with me in childbirth and. Uh, we ha had to have nurses or somebody for the first couple of years, and they kind of turned over. You know, there was never one person raising me, and um, so the the early years were kind of strange. I, it may be because of those early years I remember having to try to please people, um, and I grew up with that yeah. pretty well instilled. Then when I got into the upper grades, four, five, six, I began to realize that other people had a lot more than I did in Webster. A um, lot more. Financially. You, know. so you saw it in what saw way? Saw it in homes, saw it in uh, what they did, uh, uh, at that point even clothes. Um, not that I ever wanted for a thing, I never did. But I did see this difference because there was there was a decided difference between those who had and those who had not. Were there other people like yourself in your class? Oh sure, it was about an even split. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who did you play with? Neighbors, which were of our uh, economic background, and then through school it would be almost anybody, mm -hmm. you know. But I re really remember, for instance, birthday parties, and some birthday parties were Algonquin. Mm -hmm. And so that was a pretty obvious statement, right. you know, and so you couldn't miss that. But it was kind of a treat to have friends who could do that, mm -hmm. you know. How did it affect you at that time, or I now? I think it affected Mother more than it did me, but then, then she affected me, you know, uh, with the... Um, uh, sort of the inferior, I can't keep up kind of situation. You heard it? Or I heard it. Mm -hmm. And I saw her, um, because she was a very talented gal. Excuse me, she couldn't keep up or? She thought you, she couldn't. Or she couldn't keep up for you? Both. Oh. Okay. And uh, so it was sort of the way she functioned. And that's going to influence you oh, yeah. Yeah, in an indirect way. Um, didn't affect Dad that way. Mm -hmm. I was just going to ask, what, what were you mm -hmm. getting from your dad? Quite the reverse, when he was home, 
Mm -hmm. You know, he would be gone every other week. Mm -hmm. you know, so, um, just really almost the reverse. Um, did you play with those other children at all? I mean, did you want to? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Um, did you have any employees in your home? Mm -mm. No. No yard person? No. Uh, so, my question is, when did you become aware that there were people whose skin was a different color than yours? Consciously, I don't know. I mean, a kid is aware of differences, but may not be mm -hmm. able to mm -hmm. uh, put, put them in words. Mm -hmm. I saw the trash men. Saw um, the friends that I had who had help, which was black, always black. I, I didn't see anybody who had a white servant. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And uh, so I know that. And then I knew it at church because the church people, the cook and the custodian, mm -hmm. were both black. Those were the closest memories. You asked me the when I noticed there was a difference. I can't answer that. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think let's move on to the story that brought us together, okay. which was, um, and I think I just instead of asking you questions, okay, tell, tell me, you, tell me. What I can remember and what brought us together was my comment about the shock I went through with the civil rights movement because I suddenly was confronted with a caliber or type of black person that I wasn't aware even existed. Because when I grew up, I saw trusted family friends who had their trusted family servants um, and loved them dearly. I saw that relationship. But in particular, I saw the cook and the custodian at church. Now, the custodian was a saint. He really was. He, um, as a friend of mine's mother said, Raymond raised us all. And he really did. I mean, we learned really right and wrong from him. Um, he put the words of the Bible into actual living. And it was a rather beautiful experience. Trusted him with your life, our lives. We, we really did. Um, I grew up before air conditioning, and so therefore in the summertime we would have an 8 o'clock service in the chapel, mm -hmm. which was a stone chapel, so it stayed cooler longer. And he would come in, and in the back pew, which was separate, the back pew was actually the very back wall, and then you had the aisle, and then you had the rest of the pews. Did, did you tell me what church? Webster Pres, Webster Grove's Presbyterian. Okay. And so anyhow, he would sit back there mm -hmm. during the service, so he could be available to hop out, you know, if called upon. But he would sing, and I just loved to hear him sing, and would sneak back there if I could. Sometimes I couldn't because we weren't sitting on an aisle, so you know. But so if, you could sit next. Uh huh. 
Yeah. So it was that kind of a really wonderful, warm, trusting, loving, this is a good man uh, experience. Josephine was equally good, but not that warm. I think her personality was just different. Uh She was authoritarian. What? Authoritarian. And she ruled rather than loved. Raymond loved and controlled her that way. Josephine ruled. And she really controlled that kitchen. And this was during the time when uh, women's association was quite strong because no one was really working. So all the women were up at church on Tuesdays and having their big luncheons and their big to-dos and dinner parties and things like that. Josephine was in charge of those women. I don't care how much money they had. That was always interesting to me, how the upper crust of town knuckled under to Josephine. Example. Well, they would want to have, uh, the ladies on the committee would come up with their menu, and then they would take it into Josephine, and she would say, no. (laughs) And whatever she said went. (laughs) That was it. (laughs) Okay. And they always, uh, of course, worked in the kitchen, and and she was the general. She had them all doing all of the different tasks, and, uh, and they would all just kind of, Shake their heads and do whatever <laughs> Josephine said. Um, you said that Raymond um, taught everybody, or was example of mm-hmm. right and wrong, mm-hmm. and that people trusted him with, this, with your life. Or mm-hmm. Are there any examples of what you're saying? Uh, what, what comes to your mind when you say those <gasps> things? Oh, let's see. I, I think some of the boys could tell you more about right and wrong, mm-hmm. because they, they would... Are ways to get up into that roof of that church, and there, were, then they could throw snowballs down on Lockwood, and uh, so you'll have to. I just knew that they did it, uh-huh. you know. So, and that he he was and, the and, one in helping them not hurt themselves or anyone else. He yes, taught them not, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, he almost had to do this on an annual basis with with the next crop of kids, oh, you know. Generation. Sure. Um, as far as anything else was concerned, I mean, if he would frown a certain way, you wouldn't do it. You know, he, oh. you know it, was, it, was, it was that kind of thing. Was your relationship with him any different than all the other little no. girls and boys? No, no. So that maybe sitting back on that back wall, there might be two or three children mm-hmm. sitting with mm-hmm. Raymond and your parents, that was fine. Yeah. Uh, how about the relationship between Josephine and Raymond? You know, I don't know. One had one world and one had the mm-hmm. other, you know. So there was mm-hmm. nothing. Uh, you had told me, I'm sorry. That's all right. No, go ahead. No, that's all. Um, can you describe what he looked like? He wasn't very tall. He, when I knew him, he was beginning to get older, which means he was probably my age now. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, had worked hard all of his life, and you could tell it. He was um, beginning to stoop a little, and he was getting gray. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. He wore glasses. Do you know where he lived? No. Mm-hmm. I don't know where Josephine did either. I just wondered if he lived in the church, in the basement. Oh no, no, no. He lived with his wife, and they had their mm-hmm. own family. And I, I had the feeling he lived in Northwester, but I don't know. Um. It seems. 
Was he like a role model? Or? Mm -hmm. He was. And I thought all black men were like that. Then the other black man that we talked about that I thought of as a child was fictional, and that was Uncle Remus in The Song of the South. And he was a grandfatherly, um, loving type of man and that you could trust and would uh, sing zippity doo dah and all those Walt Disney type songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, that was my exposure to uh, in a relationship sort of situation with a black man. I did see the black men uh, pick up the trash and I just assumed they were like Raymond and but I had no contact with them at all, you know, absolutely at all. So, um, when, when was the civil rights for you? When did you, <clears throat> well, what did you, what was, what was coming in St. Louis that you all right. uh, were aware of? Um, Excuse me. St. Louis that I was aware of. <clears throat> In 1954 uh, was the Roe v. Was no, that Roe v. It was Topeka versus, Topeka versus Brown or something. The Board of Education. Yeah, Brown, Brown versus, versus Topeka. Topeka. That was that decision. It was the school decision. Right. Okay. Up to that point, because um, our school was white, Webster was white, and we celebrated Christmas Vespers each year with a pageant and choral production that was quite something. Could you tell me where you went? Webster Rose High School. Where did you go to Bristol? Bristol. Bristol, okay. And then um, in the pageant, of course, there is a white king, a yellow king, and a black king. And it was always the tallest basketball player with all this black makeup. And so the first jokes that were made was we won't have to do the makeup anymore on the Black King. So that became an, an aware factor. And everyone laughed. Uh-huh. Because um, then I was gone, so uh, the school integration bit came after I was in college. You know. So in college, I, I went to Millican University one year, white. I went to the University of Wisconsin the second year, basically white and went to Washington University my third and fourth years, basically white. So I really had no integ integration sense yeah. at all. When came out of college, the world had changed. Of course, when you go into college, you're in your own world, and then when you come out, I'm sure you kind of go through some sort of shock. But it had changed in a lot of regards. The um, value systems that we had always had, where you play the game and then you get ahead because you've played the game, seemed to be out the window. Excuse um, me. Economically. What's, what's the uh, game that you're referring Economic to? Economic game. If you're, if you're hired by a corporation and you... you say game or game? Game. game. Okay. If you play the game, you will gain. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm still saying, what's the game? In okay, words, in, in my terms. words, all right. Everybody plays a game, but everybody's may be different. So I want to know what yours is. Uh, back then, mm -hmm. when we went into college, what you did was you got your degree, if you, especially if you're a boy. You got your degree, you got a job at the lowest rung on the ladder. Mm -hmm. 
then you played all those games and you got a hit. Okay. And this didn't seem to be quite as valid as it was before we went into school. When we came out of school, things were a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Which now, what decade? We're talking uh, 58. Okay. Um, gosh, we came out of college. Elvis Presley had been around for, you know, the whole, whole sense of society was changing. Um, then I started teaching, and then I had black students. Where did you start? Normandy. I had two black students. What grade? Juniors and seniors. And they were deli they were this from the same family, and they were a delightful family. What did you teach? English. Not because I wanted to. <laughs> what, did you, what did you want to teach? I really didn't want to teach, but what did you have to do? But you had to be a nurse or a teacher. There wasn't much. Or be a secretary. Okay? okay? Mm -hmm. There wasn't much. All right, unless you wanted to buck a lot of systems, and that wasn't me. Okay. So you had two black students. So I had two black students. And um, they fell, that family fell into the category of Raymond and Joseph, uh, Raymond and Joseph, Josephine, Raymond and Josephine, because they were a delightful family. They had similar values as, as I did, and they tried hard. And I really worked hard with one of the boys because he was not an English student and he wanted to be captain of one of the f sports teams. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with him a long time, day after day. <laughs> and he finally, finally got that grade. So. Raymond was present as you were helping these people in, in your... In my con in subconscious, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He had, I think, died by that time. So then, um, miscellaneous life went on, um, but then I went back and got my master's, and that's when I ran into the integrated school situation for the first time. That's your master's where? SIU. Mm -hmm. And I saw people sitting next to me getting the same degree that I was getting, working on the same paper that I would be working on, and getting an A on their paper. that. I would have failed in my high school English class. And I would be getting an A on my paper. But it was such a double standard. And that was the first expe experience I ever had of that. They were getting an A and you were getting an A. But I would have failed them with the, with the quality of their paper. You could see, you read their paper. Oh, that we shared. We shared. Uh -huh. And I would and, have failed them. You say people were sitting next to you, so you mean black people, mm -hmm. black mm -hmm. young people. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this to one of my professors, and he said, well, this one particular one said, well, we have to do this, because we have to help these people pull up. And until they get the credentials, then they can't go back and help their own society. And we argued that one around and around. And we said, wait a minute, the credential has to be meaningful. Or you're not going to help them anyhow. Would but that's. Would you buck in the system? Yeah. But you said that to the professor. I said that to the professor. Did right. he answer? Oh, it was one of those arguments was we weren't going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. We weren't going to get anywhere. Well, how did you feel about that? Oh, I, I was furious. I was furious. I don't mind somebody else getting an A. So it was. I suppose that 
graduate school <clears throat> that I first began to realize that other people, um, that black people weren't all Raymonds and they weren't all Josephines. I saw uh, people of less than stellar morals. I saw uh, some dirt and filth, etc. And uh, it, it was a real shock. I suddenly realized I couldn't trust every black person I saw. I was always a very trusting kid, mm -hmm. and suddenly I just couldn't. Could you trust every white person? No. But, but you knew that already. Uh-huh. This was this very was a, this and you didn't know that. And I didn't know that, right. And well, so this was a real shock, and I really had to take a couple of big steps back. So it wasn't yeah. because they were black. It was, or was it? Well, but they didn't fit the black mold that I had for uh, them. Uh-huh. So, and my mold was not necessarily a servanthood mold. My mold was... <clears throat> my mold was not necessarily servitude. Right. It was, it was a goodness mold. You know, there was a certain um, beauty of the individual and, and a, a true goodness that I could uh, trust and that I could respect. And, and suddenly I was seeing things that I could not trust and I could not respect. You loved Raymond. I did. I really did. And I respected Josephine. There was sort of a different flavor there. <laughs> uh, Raymond, uh, did Raymond? Did he know he played this part in anybody's life? I don't know. I have no idea. Because this, you could talk to generations of us who would say this. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> well, um, at school, did you did you get to know anybody? Was that the time when people did that, or was it not? Or for the um, general public, like you were, yeah, not um, was interested in. Right, um, I really didn't until I um, started working. Two years after I had my master's, I began working at SIU. I stopped. I don't know how we got stopped. You were telling me what you were seeing. You were seeing dirt. You were seeing. I don't know. Did we finish that part of it? Basically. Okay. Yeah. Um. One year. Two years, I, my parallel, or the other person who had the same level job with the same training as I, was a black gal. We were the same age, mm -hmm. and her name was Gwen, and we got on great, which was wonderful. We went on two, uh, to two different conferences together, both of them held in the South. And that was an experience. You know. First one was held in Atlanta. And this would be in 1969, I can't remember if it was the fall of the year, 69 or 70. And we went to, it, the conference was at the University of Georgia. And so you had to fly into Atlanta, pick up a car and drive to the university. And we stayed a long weekend, actually, four days or something like that for this conference. The, uh, one of the men from the office also went, Leon. So we, three of us flew in, we picked up the rental car, and got in it, drove over to Albany, went into our motel, 
And the motel lady put Leon and I in one room and Gwen in another. And I looked at her and I said, oh no, I'll be with her. I don't think his wife would like it if I would be with him. She almost didn't do it. It was a real, she said, you were going to stay with her? And I said, yes. You know, and it was just tense, a real tense moment. Uh, we got through it all right. She did agree to put us together. You could tell this was the first time she'd ever done that. And so, uh, and we, Gwen and I sat up and talked about the ramifications of that. But that was kind of the end of that because we were on the university campus for the whole conference and so that not much else happened. Did that make you feel closer to Gwen? I mean, did you have a different relationship after you shared that experience? Probably closer. Uh huh. Probably so. I don't know how she felt. I've often wondered how she felt. What if I hadn't said that, you know, mm -hmm. to this lady? Mm -hmm. But anyway, you probably would have caused her a very great pain. Mm -hmm. Great pain. But I, I was not about to <laughs> go in and stay with Leon. But you also could have said. Um, Separate room. Separate room. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was very caring. But anyway, handle it. I just, you know, it, it, and it didn't dawn on me that there would be any other way to do it. What was the translation of your parents' influence? How would they have accepted the fact that you had decided? I think to fine. It was okay. Yeah, it was fine. I think especially with mother. Mm -hmm. She was a very loving person. Um, and, and Dad, Dad's interesting. He's very liberal for him. <laughs> How else can I It's lovely. Yeah, lovely way of putting it. <coughs> the second conference that we went to was in New Orleans. And we flew down. There was a whole bunch of us. It was a national convention. Flew down to New Orleans. Gwen's sister also went. So this time the three of us had a room together in one of the big hotels in New Orleans. And this was in, uh, one of those was in 69 and one of those was in 70. So whichever one it was. Um, we got our room, which was absolutely two by four with three beds squeezed in. And I think every room was like that. The whole city was overbooked. And we didn't have any linens. And so Gwen's sister called down for linens and I got the housekeeper, and Gwen had a bit of a black accent. You could tell on the, f I mean, Gwen's mm -hmm. sister, that she was not a white person on the phone. Mm -hmm. We waited, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and we really wanted to hit the showers and, and get cleaned up, and our beds weren't even made, you know, and uh, because we had a full, hard two or three days to do. So they didn't call, and I said, okay, I'll call. So I called, and she said, oh, they'll be right out. I put the phone down and the doorbell, or the door knocked. It was that fast. And so we sat up half the night talking about this issue. What did they have to say? Well, they said, that's typical. You know, that's typical. That's just what happens to us all the time, blah, 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 blah. Um, is what you're saying is that 
that they are conscious every day of the color of their skin. Um, what are the situations during the day that make you consciously aware of the color of your skin? That, now, that situation made you consciously yes. aware. We did one more thing, and then we'll get off that conference. Uh, the meetings were held pretty much about all over town, and you, sometimes you would have to take a cab to get to them because you just didn't have time between sessions to walk it. And so I went to this one place for um, a meeting, and that night Gwen was talking about how much it cost the cab fare to go up there and back, and how you know, that was prohibited, they should have provided transportation, blah, 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 blah. And I said, it wasn't that bad, it was under a dollar. She said, it wasn't either, you know, it was more like three. I said, Gwen, what kind of cab did you take? She said, a black cab. And you know what I mean by black cab? The black cab driver, black cab company. And do you remember, you, I don't know if you remember, if you, would if you would ride the bus or for some reason be downtown St. Louis and be waiting for something and you'd see a cab pull up and there would be umpteen people in it, they'd all unpile mm -hmm. and then more would pile in and off they'd go, the black cab. And they charge so much a head, not so much a mile. Well, was I wrong? Is that a, is that a, was it a black driver? A black driver okay. and held only black passengers. I see. And so they took groups of people. And, and you and you paid by the head. Okay. All right. Whereas the white cab and they companies. Had that in St. Louis. Yes, and the white cab companies charged by the mile or now the tenth of the mile. Okay. And took only whoever. Well, initially they took only white people, but no, now no, they, they took whoever waved the cab down. They wouldn't take four people right, that were going right, from different directions. Right, That's only right. only an individual fare. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so the next day we both had to get up there. So <laughs> she stood in the shadows. This was at the Hotel Roosevelt. She stood in the shadows. Was this planned? Uh huh. I hailed a white cab. I crawl in slowly, just giving her enough time to zip out and zip in. Mm -hmm. So she sat down. And we paid by the mile. And it was under a dollar. Okay. With, with tip. I mean, it, but we were only going like five blocks or something like that. Coming back, we did the reverse. She hailed the black cab. Took a little long getting in, and by that time I was at the door and one foot in. I didn't think the driver was going to let me in. I really didn't, you know. But he did. And it cost us twice as much. So the conversation that night was, hey, Gwen, your people are screwing each other. Don't get angry at me, get angry at yourself. And she responded. Well, she had to admit it. You know, it was interesting that she didn't want to, of course. Would, would she admit it with anger? Did she admit it with sadness, or did she just... Ah, gosh, this was so long ago. I'm trying to remember. Mm -hmm. I know. It's we, hard. I told my husband this morning, I wouldn't want anybody asking Because <laughs> I remember sitting, the three of us sitting in the big, there was a double bed and a, a twin bed, as most cases. And um, we were sitting in the, in the double bed, sort of was making a circle, the three of us, and talking all the nights we were there. And, I, and sometimes we were angry and sometimes we weren't. You well, Gail, you were doing things that um, only some people did in those days. Yeah. And what you're doing then is what those today who want things to be different n need to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, so 
it's really uh, amazing that to me uh, most of this came, I think, from from Raymond. From Raymond. Mm -hmm. So Raymond, I hope we hope there are many Gales out there. Yeah. 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 Um, what value do you place on your white skin? What value? Mercy, what kind of a question? You know, I, I sort of don't place a value on it. It is what I am. And if you look really closely, it's every color under the rainbow. Except you know? that. It's called white. You know, and it has been the ruling color mm -hmm. um, that gives me a leg up. It does. Mm -hmm. you know? But I hadn't thought of it in those terms, mm -hmm. you know, because I just am what I am. Right. No, I'm making you. You're making me do it. about things. I'm making you respond to me, mm -hmm. and I know that uh, the people that I interview don't think about these things, mm -hmm. but I'm, you know, making, I'm doing it to see how people react. Re well, it's not that I want a reaction from you. I want to know how people feel. Mm -hmm. I want to know how we got this way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm more concerned about where we're going. That's, that's very good. Uh, of course, you know, you and I both work with people of other race at the Missouri Historical Society, and uh, I find that a joy. Mm -hmm. you know, not that I am uh, or will be bosom buddies with everybody down there. I won't, regardless of race, be bosom buddies with everybody down there, you know, because there are some people I disagree with, white and black. Right. But some I do agree with. Um. What do you feel the differences are between black and white people? Do you think there are differences? There might be perceived differences. I don't think there are differences. <clears throat> I'd like to read you something that um, um, caught my attention in my head last night. That a, black, a young black woman, this is from an interview I've okay. done of a young black woman, and um, to lead up to it, well, she's about 47, I really went to interview her mother and she sat in on it, which was great. Um, but they were talking about, uh, um, well, they were talking about how to get ahead, hard work, and, and the, the older woman said, but the young people today, I'm glad I'm not a young person because they're really catching hell. And the daughter says, typical example, typical example, the assumption is because you want equal opportunity is that I want to come to your home. I want to be your friend. I want to be seen with you. And I can even understand how white people feel that way, how it came about, because they think they're superior. They're taught from that very young age that they are superior. Therefore, they have something that we want. All we want is the opportunity. If you're a lousy person, we don't want to be with you anyway. Which, uh, okay. Um, have you read the North Webster book? The book of the... That was just put out? Uh -huh. I haven't read it. I've, I've seen some of the pictures. 
Well, the copy in that was fascinating reading for me. Um, one of the ladies, don't ask me who, I mean, I'd have to get out the book and reread it. One of the ladies was teaching her children about uh, working for white people. Don't work for anybody who's white trash. You won't learn anything from them, was mm -hmm. the quote. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Interesting thought. Um, about uh, um, racism, but we're talking about uh, the difference between blacks and whites, or why people feel the way they do. Which, and uh, I read that you know this young woman's feelings mm -hmm. uh, on the subject. James Baldwin, the author, um, he said it's not a question even of the ignorance of white people. It is a question of the fears of white people. So that would, what makes it all so hysterical, so unwieldy, so completely irretrievable. Reason cannot reach it. It is though some great, great, great wound is in the whole body and, one, and no one dares to operate, to close it, to examine it, to stitch it. Okay. Um, May I comment on both of these, or do you have others? I have one more. Okay. Comment, comment. Go ahead, give me the one more. I interviewed a, a black woman who is a great interview. Not that everybody isn't a great interview, but she... So I happened to be talking to her last night, and I said, listen, I'm going to interview this white woman. <laughs> <laughs> and if you could ask her one question yeah. from down deep in your gut, what would it be? And she said, after a few minutes, I don't know, but I know what I would tell, tell her. So I said, I thought she never fails me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she said, um, they created a monster when they brought us over to be slaves. Then they let us loose, and it's, it's all an economic thing. So that's, that's um, my third. Your third? Yeah, I just wanted to give some ideas or feelings from a few black people. They're all mm -hmm. different, mm -hmm. um, of course. Yeah. Okay, here's a, a white thought. Mm -hmm. I have been conscious of my race in that another race is trying to lay a whole hell of a lot of guilt on me that I didn't have anything to do with. I absolutely had nothing to do with slavery. I am terribly sorry it happened, but I will not take that guilt. So don't try to make a guilt trip. That's what I, that's where I am. That's where you are. That's where I am. If I'm going to be guilty about anything, it's going to be what I do or what I do not do. And that's the only guilt I can handle, period. Okay, that, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing, and we may have talked about this when we talked that one time. I'm all American. You're all American. We're not alike in our backgrounds at all. Okay. The black person of St. Louis who was born and raised here is all American. And I really 
you get angry with the new in phrase of Afro-American. Because if they're Afro-American, then I cannot be white. But they insist on me being white. They insist on calling me white and them Afro-American. If they're Afro-American, then I am Dutch, German, Swiss, French, English, and Irish. And I think I've left one out, American. They don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you be black, I'll be white. But we'll both be all American. And that's the build. That's the bridge. You know, that's where we can make it. Now, what I see today is I see people who want to make it, who are white, people who want to make it together. I'm talking about uh -huh. want to, want want to, to see our it. society make it together. And I see black people. I see black people who do not want to make it, who are angry and are nurturing all the anger and are teaching their children to that whitey's out to get them. And that's a direct quote from some children. Okay. And I see the, on the other side, I see the white people who do not want to make it and who are out to get the black person. Both of those ends are extremely angry, extremely vocal, extremely volatile and get all the publicity and make all the noise and have uh, quite an influence on their peers. The Two sets in the middle are the quieter ones, trying to make things quieter, smooth the waters, grow, and you never hear from these people. And therefore the influence is small. It's there, but it's small. But it's the one, it's the bridge, you know, that's, that's got to grow. That's got to grow. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's my concern. My concern is when a television interviewer has uh, this darling, child on the other side, he was at a playground, on the other side of a chain link fence, and this child of about seven saying, uh, well, Whitey's out to get us. In all full belief and innocence, he's saying that. And I'm not. Now that's when I will take uh, note of my race because I am not out to get that child. I feel sometimes um, when they say the polls, mm -hmm. and I think, nobody asked me. Ever. It's a four minutes of two, and you wanted to be, be gone. How are we doing? Well, we're doing well. Um, Put in on your third page question. Yeah, it's OK. Yeah. But I kind of go as far north as uh, Highway 40, <laughs> you know, when I think of in-city. Mm -hmm. And I don't get any farther north. And uh, this Gwen I was talking about earlier um, lived in the near north side of the city. And I had had her over to my house. I lived in Edwardsville at the time and uh, for dinner. And she said, I wish I could invite you to my house, but I can't. You can't come. You wouldn't live. You know, to, to make it up the street. It's too dangerous for you. Where do you live? Where do I live now? Where did you live then? Then, oh, then in Edgewood. Where, where do you live now? 
Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury. I have it upstairs. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I really feel, and that angers me, because this is my city, too. You know, and so there's half of the city I can't go to. It's the part, oh, I don't know, was it Kensington or whatever street it was that, and meet me in St. Louis, Louis, can't go down that street and see that house. Which keeps you from being in Gwen's home, furthering your friendship. Right. Or whatever. Right, if it was possible or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever would however the cards would fall. But, it, you know, that's very, that's angering me because a black person could go anywhere mm. in the city of St. Louis. Oh, in the city of St. Louis. Sure. Okay. Yeah, maybe as a worker, but he's, his life isn't at risk to go anywhere in Webster. That was, um, when was this that Gwen said this to you? What year? That same time when we were on our trips. Uh huh. In the 60s, late. late 60s, early 70s. Okay, because that was nice of her to tell you that mm -hmm. it was not safe. Mm -hmm. she felt it wasn't safe. They eventually moved to University City, and I did get to see her once there, and then she got married and moved, and I haven't heard from her since. You know, mm -hmm. we've just gone different directions, yeah. and that's life. Right. You know? So I really feel as if half of the city. I'm not free to go into. Mm -hmm. And you f that makes you feel what? Well, uh, angry. Angry. Yeah. They're free to come into my part of the city. Why aren't I free to go into there? Who are you angry at? Whoever it is that stops me from going there. I'm, I get, I'm angry at the non-Raymonds. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm angry at. Okay. We better stop. We might, we might examine um, the power structure in St. Louis, yeah. as far as I don't know how much I know of that. Well, I don't know a lot about it, but I, the fact that our city is looks well, we'll get into it. Okay. Oh wait, thirty-first, and uh, this is the second interview that I'm conducting with Dale Ferris on her life, her race in memory. Independent study. To, to Gussie on the first tape is just Gussie. Did you know Gussie? Your mother had an office right outside. Oh, Gussie. Uh, no, I never did know okay, Gussie. Okay, so it was just a. That's the way everybody referred everybody to Everybody did. Okay. Um, all right. I'm presuming the mic is on. Yes. Okay. Uh, our other tape wouldn't be well going. Okay. Um, but thanks. I, Sometimes. I've done that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, did we have Raymond's last name? Wilkins, I believe. Wilkins, mm -hmm. or Josephine's last name? No. Okay. And um, the name of the church? Webster Gross Presbyterian. Okay, I think I did have that. Uh -huh. And. Uh, did anybody at Christmas time were you aware of giving Josephine or Raymond Christmas presents or anything? Not that I was aware of. Okay. I'm sure they did. Yeah. All right. But I just meant from from the children because there was no. such a all right. Um Okay. Let me these are catch up questions okay. from the other tape. Um 
your your father when you said dad it was liberal for dad um, what does that mean and and what did you hear from him and what I heard and what I saw were two different things. Are two different things. Yeah. Okay. Um, he says he is um, racially tolerant, uh, understanding, and in one regard he is. He's helped quite a few people get established in their own business, quite a few black men get established in their own business. At the same time, he's not at all. Um, personally tolerant. You know, I think he's ideally tolerant, but not reality personally tolerant um, of another race, any other race. It's not just black. Anything that is different from his background. He doesn't know, number one, and uh, I think he just reflects the what he heard as a child, you know, that they are different and anything different is not as good as. Uh, and your father's background is Swiss, Swiss and... No, father's no. background was the Dutch... Oh, it was the Dutch of Van de mm -hmm. Dutch-German. Mm -hmm. um, but your father thinks that he's... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, how did it fit in? How did what he was was that confusing to you? Uh, or when did you figure it out? I suppose when I grew up and got into the out, you know, into the big wide world, uh, you start figuring that out, and then you start thinking sometimes, Dad, um, what are you saying? You know, what are you doing? Uh, but his awareness of his position is um, totally clear. He's totally committed to helping the underdog. You know, if, if they, uh, somebody needs help with uh, a project or with his business or, or his home, you know, he's there to help. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think Dad would ever have a friend who is of another race. Gotcha. Um, did you ever manage to discuss anything with him? No. No. Because? Because he doesn't discuss. <laughs> <laughs> this I, I learned this at about this high. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, that's table high. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, does he discuss nothing or just particularly that? You know, he, he's not a discusser. Um, all right, there was one more, let's see. Oh. Well, the civil rights part of it, where you began to see um, that people were not like Raymond, mm -hmm. uh, that there were, they didn't fit the, the Raymond mold of, of goodness. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned that you saw dirt. And, uh, and I was wondering... Is that dirt? Yeah, you, you use that term, which you...